Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Maybe you've heard this term before. You ever heard someone talk about organizational drift? Organizational drift is uh, the idea that the principles that started an organization or a business are not the principles that they are operating by currently. And so the convictions, the ideas, the, the central tenets of the things that started an organization or, or the things that they were most devoted to actually become something of the periphery later on. And you know how that works, right? The things that you start off as goals, you uh, start off, you say, I want to I lose weight. I want to get fit. I want to do this or that or this other thing. We kind of lose track of that and we get off course and all of a sudden our desires change and our motives change. And we kind of need to get back to the central tenets. It's the things that started us down that path are so important for us to stay on the path itself. Isn't it true? See, the principles that we start off with in faith are important and imperative for us to stick to so that we might continue in faith. Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that he says, just as you received Christ, so walk in him. And so one of the things we do here is we preach the gospel. We preach the gospel to the unbelieving, but more importantly, or or just as important as we preach the gospel to those who are believing, because we recognize that we have this drift away from the gospel and the central tenets of our faith. Isn't that true? Exodus 11 holds forth for us the promise of God and the not yet fulfillment of that reality. And it's important here in Exodus chapter 11 for Israel, for Moses in particular, to remember the promise and to trust that its fulfillment is coming. He's got to get back to his founding principles, as it were. Here's what I think our big idea is this morning. And this is the big idea that I think keeps Moses and us on the, on the path in God's economy. One person's chastisement is another's deliverance. In God's economy, one person's chastisement is another's deliverance. What I mean by that is in God's way of doing things, in the way he's structured and organized uh, his interactions with mankind, he chooses to pour out his wrath on an individual to deliver a people here in the book of Exodus and ultimately in Christ. We're going to see this in three different movements. In verses 1 through 3, Moses receives words from God. In verses 4 through 8, Moses speaks to Pharaoh. And then in verses 9 through 10, God tells Moses that Pharaoh will not listen. If you're paying attention to kind of our, our, our plague cycle, this is really just that first phase. And Josiah will probably cover uh, the second and third phases of that next week. But here we go. The first thing we're going to see is that Moses receives words from God. We're in Exodus chapter 11 on page 53 in your pew Bibles. If you want to read along, we're going to read verses 1 through 3 now. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more, and I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt afterward. Excuse me. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more, I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt 
afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Perhaps it's best for us just to back up a little bit. If you're confused about the nature of this text, it might make more sense for us to kind of back up into chapter 10, verse 28. If you look there, uh, the, mo- the writing re- records for us, then Pharaoh said to him, this is said to Moses, he says, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. See, when I read this this morning or this week, as I was studying, I was confused because I thought, how is Moses coming back into the presence of Pharaoh when Pharaoh promised him immediate death if he were to come and to see his face again? But as I read up commentators and others, they were saying it's not a different visit. Essentially, what's happening in verses 28 and 29 bleeds directly into what happens in verse 1 of chapter 11. So as Moses is speaking to Pharaoh, God speaks to Moses about what's to happen. One plague more, and you will be free. By the way, Israel, you should go out and you should ask for jewelry. Because, you know, you want bling in the desert, right? You want to be dressed up. You want to look good. Well, no, we'll read about that. We'll talk about that. Verse 1, he talks about the last plague will lead to final deliverance. He says, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. It might seem like God's plan had failed. We're nine plagues in, and still Israel is stuck in Egypt, right? We've had nine long, hard plagues, and still Israel is there in this foreign land. But really. Oh, excuse me. As readers, though, we've seen the inside track. We've seen this kind of statement to Moses time and time again that he will deliver them. He will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he's promising that he's going to actually let them go. And so verse 1, he will let you go from here. Pharaoh's command to not see his face again means more than what he intended. There's a a bit of a predictive irony in Pharaoh's words at the end of chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. Uh, You're not going to see my face again. And then very next thing that God is saying to Moses is, hey, by the way, you're going to go away from here, right? There's a a statement that's made there. Finally, he talks about in verse 1, the last plague will lead to this final deliverance. One more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Again, we we see that it feels like Israel stuck there, that they haven't been delivered. We've heard God tell Moses time and time again, hey, we're going to let you go. In fact, all of the plagues started in Exodus chapter 7 when God said this in verse 4. He said, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring uh, my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of mercy. 
In fact, each time the passage tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and that he will not listen, the text often says, just as the Lord had said, God had been predicting time and time again that God would harden Pharaoh's heart, that he wouldn't listen, and that he would not let them go. And so we had this kind of expectation that there were going to be multiple plagues, that there were going to be multiple acts that God was going to perform to set his people free. So what happens next in verse 1, look, he says, he's, afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. There's no partial deliverance in mind here. Pharaoh is going to drive Israel away completely. This means not just part of Israel. It's not just going to be the adults, or it's not going to be uh, the adults and the kids without their cattle or whatever else that Pharaoh has tried to compromise. And it's not going to be just for a limited time. It's not just going to be for three days or six days or two weeks. It's going to be forever. And so God is predicting that Pharaoh will be the one who drives Israel out of the land and that he will do so willingly and without compromise. I don't think we understand how good this news would be to the ears of an Israelite. I don't think we understand the strength and the nature of the oppression that these Israelites had faced. It was uh, marked the end of dying babies. It marked the end of this forced manual labor. And unbeknownst to Israel, it's the beginning of this national identity that God was going to form for his people. And so God is going to deliver his people. He promises this yet again in verse 1. But it's not just that he's going to deliver them. It's that he's going to deliver them with abundant blessing in verses 2 through 3. In fact, they're going to plunder. It's the word used in the book of Exodus. They're going to plunder the Egyptians. In the midst of this conversation with Pharaoh, God speaks to Moses, and he says this crazy thing. Hey, you should tell the Israelites that they should go to their Egyptian neighbors and ask for jewelry. Isn't that what he says there in verse 2? Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gives them favor, and sure enough, this thing happens. The truth is, this plundering of the Egyptians would be the elements, the the gold and the silver elements that would be contributed to uh, the development of the tabernacle later on in this book, right? So what's going to happen from here is the Israelites will leave, they'll receive the law at Mount Sinai, and in the midst of that instruction about the law, God is going to tell Moses and the Israelites how to build a tabernacle. We don't use that word very often, it's kind of a religious-sounding word, But what it was was a house of worship. It was a tent where they would meet with God. And so God is giving this instruction to the Israelites about how exactly he's going to meet with them. And these materials that they're collecting here will be the means by which they build this. See, Moses may be driven away from Pharaoh's face at the end of chapter 10, but it's this provision from God that will allow Moses to see God face to face as a man meets with his friend, as Exodus 33 will describe. See, the blessing isn't in the jewelry or the gold or the silver or the cloth or whatever else it is that's given to them. The blessing is the presence of God that's going to be brought into the midst of the Israelites. Remember, the Israelites aren't uh, special in and of themselves. It's the presence of God with these Israelites. Remember, 
this morning that God had promised to bless Abraham. Now, that years before, in the book of Genesis, there's a guy named Abraham, and Abraham was an Iraqi. He lived in present-day Iraq. He was a foreigner. He worshiped foreign gods. And God called him. In Genesis chapter 12, it says this, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. See, God calls this Iraqi foreigner, this idol worshiper, to be one who will trust in him. Abraham, who had no children, was to be blessed through his promise, through God's promise, right? So God's posture to Abraham's descendants was one of unconditional blessing. It's interesting, a few chapters after this, in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham and God are going to make a covenant. They're going to make a promise. And the way you did this in the Old Testament was you took animals. You took Fluffy the sheep, and you took, uh, you know, the bell cow, whatever else it was, and you split them in half. And you set them one side on each side, and what you would do is you would state the terms of your covenant, and then you would walk through these, the midst of these animal halves, and you would say, hey, if, if I break this covenant, it's, it's going to be like one of these dead animals. My life depends on my obedience to this covenant. What happens is, Genesis 15, Abraham's all ready to make a covenant. He has the animals there. He has the fire. He has the altar. He has everything going, and he falls asleep. And in the midst of that sleep, he has a vision which God passes through the animal halves on his own. The truth is that God's covenant with Abraham was what we call an unconditional covenant. There was no conditions or requirements made upon Abraham. God was just going to bless him because God was a God of blessing. See, this morning we recognize that God loves to bless his people. We are recipients of abundant grace in Christ, not because we earned it or did something right or because we kept a covenant. Rather, God blesses us despite ourselves. James 1 says this, that every good thing given, every perfect gift rains down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. John the Baptist says a person cannot receive anything, even one thing, unless it is given to him from heaven. 1 Corinthians 4 says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, everything we have is blessing from God. And as believers in Christ, we can say with, with Paul that uh, every trial, every circumstance is meant for us to, to take on the character of Christ. See, God blesses us in any number of ways. He blesses you with with work. He blesses you with provision. He blesses you with family. But perhaps the greatest of these blessings is our communion with God. And all of these other advantages are just kind of additions to this central blessing that we have in Christ. But our text presents to us the flip side of this that there are those who are not recipients of God's blessing. In fact, as we saw last week, some are purposed for something different. Look at what God has coming for Pharaoh in verses 4 through 8. So Moses, and now Moses is directing his words toward Pharaoh, said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, 
and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will get out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. God promises the death of the firstborn of Egypt. If, if God is dealing with Israel in this sense of just prevalent blessing, how he's dealing with Egypt is through death and curse. So he promises this death to all the firstborn. As we see in a moment, God had promised Abraham to curse everyone who opposed him in Genesis 12, verse 3. And so these Egyptians had crossed this kind of sacred boundary. In afflicting God's chosen people, they had invited God's retribution. But notice the method of what's going to happen here. God says that he himself, in verse 4, he will go out. God himself, not Moses, not Aaron, would go out into the midst of Egypt, that he will strike down the firstborn. Why the firstborn? Why is that a thing that God wants to do? Well, in the context, remember back in chapter 4, verses 22 through 23, God referred to Israel as his firstborn son, right? He says, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. He predicted this. God saw Israel as his firstborn son, and he promised to kill Egypt's firstborn if God didn't let his go. But it's not just boys, it's girls, and it's livestock. It's all these different things. All of these will be put to death because of Pharaoh's obstinance to the heart and words of God. And we recognize that when you sin against an infinitely holy, infinitely righteous God, the retribution that comes back to you is also itself infinite. Verse 6 tells us that this is unparalleled in history. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. In fact, it matches a lot of what we saw last week in chapters 9 and 10, that God is going to do something that he has not done before and will not ever do again in this particular area. But then God turns his attention to the effect on Israel. In fact, Israel is not to be affected. Look at what he says in verse 7, not a dog will growl against Israel. Pharaoh is to know that there's a distinction between Israel and Egypt, and truth be told, there's no proof like that of mass graves. The final sting of all this is that Pharaoh's servants, those closest to him, will commit what seems like treason. They'll come to to Moses and they'll say, please get out. As Pharaoh has just fought tooth and nail to keep these Israelites here in the nation of Egypt, these servants of Pharaoh will come and plead with Moses to leave. And they themselves will beg on hands and knees for Israel to get out. See, as much as God was going to bless his people, God had also seen to curse all those who stood against Abraham. 
In fact, in Abraham, in his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, he says this, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. See, Pharaoh had cursed Abraham's descendants and now God stood opposed to him. This retributive justice that God is bringing had been promised you know, chapters before in the book of Genesis that God was going to bring this punishment against those who stood against his people. See, the truth is this morning that God has a definite posture toward those who oppose him and oppose his people. Today, the warning against those who oppose God is stark. We saw this a few weeks ago in 2 Thessalonians. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Peter says that there's coming a day when God will judge the living and the dead. Those who stand opposed to God's people should anticipate God's retribution. The psalmist says that the wicked question if God sees. Psalm 94, Psalm 73, is there knowledge in the Most High? Our God does see, and he promises that he will bring his wrath and his judgment. But notice this isn't all that's in our text here in chapter 11. Verses 9 and 10 bring another reflection entirely. God himself is using Pharaoh's hard-heartedness to heap up or multiply his glory. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. See, God tells Moses that Pharaoh isn't going to listen. Verse 9 says, Pharaoh will not listen to you. It's worth noting this morning that God had a long history of speaking to people who wouldn't listen to him. In Isaiah 6, he's going to make this statement. He says to Isaiah, he says, uh, speak to those who who will not listen to you. He says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. They keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Isaiah was going to go out and speak God's words to uh, these people that were in opposition to him, and they were going to see, but not see, and hear, but not hear. Jesus himself would actually quote that in Matthew chapter 13, when he's talking about how he speaks in parables, and he says, seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not hear. See, because Pharaoh's heart is hardened, his ears are deaf to the words of God. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You meet someone who speaks a different language, and it's hard to kind of have an interaction with them because they're a little slow in English, and you're a little slow in their language or whatever else it might be. So the tendency is to speak louder, like they'll understand you if you just raise your volume. Have you ever had that experience, like someone who's from a foreign country, and they're not understanding what you're saying, so you just speak louder, right? As if the volume were the problem. See, Pharaoh's problem here is not the lack of clarity of what God is saying. He had seen all of these miraculous signs. Pharaoh's problem was his failure to comprehend the language of God. 
God had given him nine different miraculous things that he was supposed to see, and Pharaoh couldn't interpret them because he wasn't on the same wavelength with the God that was speaking to him. But notice what God says in verse 9. He has a particular purpose behind this. He says, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. See, God is multiplying or heaping up is the language here, his miracles by Pharaoh's deafness. The more Pharaoh rejects, the more God has opportunity to prove himself strong. And so in ignoring that denial is turned to blood, denial, right? God had opportunity to bring frogs upon the land. And when God brought frogs upon the land and Pharaoh didn't listen, he brought gnats and so on and so forth. See, the picture here is the piling up of miracles performed in Egypt that the point of the massive power and authority of Yahweh might be shown not just to Pharaoh, but to the whole world. So God's deeds speak of his Glory, God has given Pharaoh no shortage of acts which point out how powerful and mighty he is, but it's like it's just bouncing off the forehead of Pharaoh. He's just not listening to it. I might say, what what do we do with this? These 10 verses here in Exodus chapter 11. See, despite these multiple wonders, look at what it says in verse 10. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. You know, there's something strange that happens in this passage. We we had an introduction in chapter 7 before all of the plagues began. We preached that a few weeks ago. And then there's this kind of... uh, parenthesis that happens in Exodus chapter 11. And what's interesting is that the language matches. So you can see uh, there's a comparison here between Exodus 7 verses 3 and 4 and 6 and Exodus 11 verses 9 and 10. And I've kind of done the, the work to highlight the portions that match. And you can see there's different phrases that almost match one another entirely. In Exodus 7, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. In Exodus 11, that's exactly what he says in verse 10, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. In Exodus 7, he says, I multiply my signs and wonders in the lands of Egypt. And then in Exodus 11, verse 9, he says, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Verse 4 of of Exodus 7, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And then in verse 9 of Exodus 11, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And again, Moses and Aaron's obedience is highlighted in chapter 7 and in verses 11. And what it's showing us is that exactly what God said would happen is exactly what did happen and exactly what will happen. Right? He's saying, Pharaoh will not listen to you. That's happened time and time again. He's multiplied his wonders in the land of Egypt. He will harden Pharaoh's heart. All of these things are happening continually. The one thing that remains to happen is that the people of Israel have not been let go. See, whatever is happening here, it's about going. When we look at our text, there's four different usages in ten, ver- in 10 verses about Israel leaving that place. In verse 1, it mentions it a couple times. And in verse 4, uh, the Lord is going out into the midst of Egypt. And then all the way down at verse 8, it's 
Moses saying he's going to go out of the land of Egypt. There's this constant emphasis on going. Israel is going to go. The Lord is going to go. Moses is going to go. And all of them are going to go in different ways. See, the first thing is going to happen is that God's presence, his person is going to go out into the land of Egypt, and he's going to bring about death and destruction. And through that miraculous interaction, he'll bring about the deliverance of his people, Egypt, and of his servant, Moses. Does it sound familiar to you? God was bringing his curse on Egypt, upon Pharaoh in particular, that he might deliver his own people. There's this passage in Galatians chapter 3, and it reminds us that there was one person who was cursed that his people might receive blessing. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It's a very simple interaction here that Paul's describing for us. First in verse 13, Jesus was cursed. This quotation comes from Deuteronomy 21, and it's speaking about what the Israelites were supposed to do when they had to put someone to death and they were going to hang them on a tree. They weren't supposed to leave them there overnight. They were to take down their body because this body was cursed and they were to bury it appropriately. Paul says that this curse is applied to Jesus, that he is hanged upon a tree, even though he is innocent. By the very nature of his death, Jesus was associated with the curse, with our curse that we had earned in our sinfulness. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made Jesus be sinful, not that he was sinful or had performed any sin. It's that he poured out the penalty of sin upon an innocent Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says that in 1 Peter chapter 2, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. See, God took all of his people guilt and laid it upon his own son. He laid our curse upon Jesus Christ. But that's not where he ends. He, he plays off these two words, curse and blessing, in verses 13 and 14, so that we might see the juxtaposition that we have in Christ. He says, we are blessed by his curse, in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Remember what, what God said? He said that you shall become a great nation that Abraham would become this great nation, and, and he thought it was going to be through his seed. But it comes in a completely different way because Abraham's great, 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 great grandson is Jesus himself, and all who believe in Jesus are part of this blessing that God promised to Abraham. See, we are blessed by Jesus cursed. If we have faith in Jesus, we are blessed with Abraham, who also lived by faith. All those, uh, all that blessing which comes through faith in Jesus was also promised to Abraham. 
See, here's the upshot of this, right? You and I are blessed because another was cursed. The promise of God's deliverance is yours because another was handed over to sin or to death, excuse me. By his wounds, we have been healed. Or Matthew chapter 20, Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. Or Galatians chapter 1, Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. See, by Jesus' blood, you are counted righteous if you have faith in Jesus. Isn't that good news this morning? See, as we talk about where we are today, and this idea that we might lose sight of the original vision that we had that drove us to faith in the first place, that we continue in the faith that we first received, we want to keep this before us. There was one who received our curse. There was one who extended his blessing. And Jesus Christ has laid down his life so that you and I might relate to him in blessing and not in curse. You're saying, what does this mean for me tomorrow? There's been a few different times recently where, where someone has texted me or called me or told me of various circumstances that are just very difficult. Things going on, there's troubles and hardships, whether it's sickness or divorce or or just other things. We recognize the difficulty of that moment. I've, I've had no shortage of moments where I've kind of huddled over my cell phone thinking, what do I say to this person? How do I comfort them? How do I help them? And sometimes all I can find are the words hang in there, like a motivational cat poster at the workplace, right? My words just fall so far short. There's no words that can speak courage into the hearts of people there. I just found myself very frustrated in that moment to speak truth in such a way that it actually gives life to those people that face those circumstances. And yet it's not, it, it isn't just cliche. See, in this moment, Israel stands between the promise of deliverance and the act of deliverance, don't they? They've received the promise from God that God will deliver them fully and finally, but it hasn't happened yet. We also stand in this place where we've received promise from God, but not his full and final deliverance. The Bible says this thing. It says that we're in the last days. And listen, I I know our current culture, right? And as soon as you talk about the last days, everybody gets really like tight because we all like it's fear mongering. But the biblical principle says that these last days have been since the time of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. The author of Hebrews refers to this time between Jesus's death and his return as the last days. 1 Peter chapter 1 says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. 
that God is speaking to us in the scriptures to saying this era between Jesus's resurrection and his return is something that we refer to as the last days. So I'm not trying to fear monger. I'm not trying to, to, you know, cause any fear amongst you. I'm just trying to use biblical language. And in these last days, we're defined by two different things, the revelation of Jesus as the Son of God, but not the fullness of his victory. We're kind of in between those two things, the revelation of Jesus and this return of Jesus. Man, that's a tough place to be sometimes, isn't it? We have the fullness of God's promise. We have the presence of the Spirit. We have the full revelation of his word. And yet sometimes you and I fall so short of what God has required of us, haven't we? See, as such, in this state of already, not yet, we're prone to the following. We're prone to discouragement, to exhaustion, to anxiety, to unbelief. It's like we're just open to all of these kind of hardships. In fact, I think part of that is by God's design. Paul says things like this. He says this light momentary affliction is creating for us an eternal weight of glory. He says in in Romans chapter 8 that the suffering that we face right now will not be worth comparing to the glory that's revealed to us. Listen, I've spoken to many of you, and I've felt it in my own heart and mind. Some of us are tired. Some of us are exhausted. Some of us are, are threadbare in our souls. And if not uncommon, we should find this to be a regular pattern. At times, as we live this life and we try to do the things that, that God wants us to do, we should find ourselves tired and exhausted. It's, it's pretty regular. Paul actually says to pastors in Thessalonica, he says um, that we should admonish the unruly, we should encourage the faint-hearted, and that we should help the weak, and we should be patient with the all. It, did you catch that in there? We should encourage the faint-hearted. That there's some of us here this, this morning that are just discouraged. We just feel beat down by this moment that we live in. That's normal. It's okay for us to be tired. Paul says this to his letter to, to Timothy. And this is in 2 Timothy, where he's about to die. He says, I am being poured out like a drink offering. You know what a drink offering was? This bit of some kind of liquid oil or whatever else it might be is just dumped out on the sacrifice. Poured out, completely used up. It's Paul's description of his life there. But here's what we do. We don't just stay there in this moment of exhaustion. We don't just say, oh, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. I'm discouraged. I'm, I'm anxious. I'm 
uh, having trouble believing in God's promises, what we do is we cling to the promises of God. If we're stuck between this moment of what God has promised and, and when God delivers, our job, as it were, is to cling to the promises of God, to cling to the promise of God's salvation in Jesus Christ, to, to know that he's given me a full-on replacement, the one who bore my curse on my behalf and gave me the righteousness of God. I have to cling to that promise, to cling to the promise of Jesus' return that someday he's coming to relieve us from this anxiety, from this down and, and discouragement and exhaustion, that he's clinging to the promise of his ongoing help and sustaining power in the Spirit. See, that's what we do. We don't just wallow in our guilt and our depression and our downness. What we do is we grip up with the gospel and we say, Jesus was given over for my sinfulness, and he gave me his righteousness so that I can be filled up with his Spirit and walk with him in power today. See, we can't just stay in this moment of discouragement and exhaustion. What we have to do is we have to say, God, I'm discouraged and exhausted. I need you to be present with me. We take that discouragement, we take that exhaustion, we take that anxiety to the presence of God and say, God, you died so that I could represent you to this world. So help me bear up with the strength that you provide that I might glorify your name. See, there is one who has taken your curse. There is one who's given you his blessing. So we don't have to get stuck in our exhaustion and our anxiety and our unbelief and our discouragement. This morning, I know this feels heavy-handed or a lot, but we recognize that there are throughout history examples of those who have been stuck between God's promise that he's given to them, to his people, and the fulfillment of that promise. And the thing that has to happen in between those two moments is this word we call faith. We have to express faith that the promise is true. And we have to act on that faith by the power that he gives us in the spirit and the resurrected life we have in Christ. I want to pray that God makes us those people this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would give us power and strength in our exhaustion and tiredness, our anxiety, our discouragement, our unbelief. Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction where necessary, where we haven't walked with you as we should. That you might bring comfort where it's necessary, that you might allow your presence to be a deep, rich encouragement to us. But I pray, Lord, that by the truth of the gospel, the sacrificial death of your son, Jesus, by the fullness of your spirit that indwells us, by the richness of your promises that you might spur us on. Lord, I pray that you, would not help, that you wouldn't allow us to be weary of doing good, but through faith that you would strengthen us and encourage us toward righteous living and kingdom-mindedness. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.